I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me and open to the book of Romans chapter 8. This, this morning we have a text that is filled with good news. And as I was looking through uh, my sermon again last night and thinking about the text and watching what was happening on the television, I had this overwhelming urge to fill my sermon full of football illustrations. But I'm going to exercise a tremendous amount of discipline this morning. Because even though the New England Patriots have punched their ticket to the AFC Championship game for the seventh year in a row, I'm just thrilled that we have something even more important to talk about. And that is the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. And so please pray with me as we look at Romans chapter 8 together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to explore further the wonderful work that you do in our lives through the Holy Spirit. And I pray today that you would encourage us with this good news, that we would be edified, that we would be compelled, and that we would be grateful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, someone once said to me that true freedom is experienced when you have nothing to prove or nothing to lose. True freedom is when you have nothing to prove or nothing to lose. And I've thought a lot about that over the years, trying to figure out if it's true. (laughs) I wonder if you think that that is true. I'm sure that it's not true in all instances, But it certainly is true in many, and I'm sure it depends upon how you define freedom. But overall, I think it's true in a lot of ways. I mean, a person experiences true freedom to explore and to exercise creativity in their work when they can confidently go about their job because they have job security and that they know that their boss knows that they're a hard worker and that they have the competencies required for the task. They experience in that moment true freedom. There's nothing to prove. True freedom happens when you can be yourself in a marriage because you know that the spouse who loves you is committed to you and will not leave you no matter what. There's nothing to prove. True freedom is when you have nothing to prove. I wonder if you can think of other areas of your life where that might hold to be true. Maybe other relationships, the relationship between children and their parents, or or perhaps other explorations in your life and recreation or hobbies or on down the line. You know, as we consider the book of Romans, and as we've been looking over the past number of months in Romans chapters 5 through 8, we've been seeing how the Apostle Paul is describing a little bit different type of freedom, the type of freedom that God gives to those who have put their faith in Jesus. And we've seen how he says boldly in this sort of looping manner throughout Romans 5 through 8, how we're free from the realm of Adam and As a result, we have access to the realm of Christ, and we're free from the power of sin, and as a result, we have been given righteousness. And we've seen, even as recently as last week, how we're free from the law, and as a result of being free from the law, that we have been given a new life. And Paul, in Romans 8, picks up 
something that he had mentioned quite a bit earlier, earlier in Romans chapter 7. We had talked about it months ago. And we gave it just a passing glance, knowing that this was coming. But he continues the thought of Romans chapter 7, verse 6, that says this. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not the old way of the written code. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. And now, in Romans chapter 8, he gives us the great news of what that new way in the Spirit actually looks like and how it can happen. And so look with me at Romans chapter 8. We're going to read it in sections throughout the message this morning. But I want to start with verses 1 to 4. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so Paul starts this new section of Romans chapter 8 talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian and how every single person who has faith in Jesus Christ is marked in some way by the dominance of this third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And he begins to describe what this life in the Spirit is like by describing the foundation that we have for this new life. Now I mentioned just a moment ago that Romans chapter 5 through 8 has this looping dynamic to it in which Paul mentions something and then he goes on to explain it and then he goes on to something else and then he comes back to it again and then he goes on to something else and he comes back to it again. And so you're seeing repeated themes coming from a variety of angles and now we have the nature of the gospel as it relates to a foundation for your life moving forward. Not for your righteousness from God per se. Not for your eternal destiny just yet. But for the foundation of your life right now. And he talks about the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit of God functions in the work of Christ to give you new life and ongoing security. And so he says in verses 1 and 2, there is no condemnation. That is a bold proclamation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ because you've been set free from the law of sin and death. That is that God sent his son to liberate us from the condemnation of sin. Now this proclamation that there's no condemnation for you who've put your faith in Christ, gives us a wonderful assurance. If you walk out of here this morning with nothing else, I want you to walk out of here with the fact that because of Christ, you can be assured in your standing before God. I regularly meet people and talk to people who don't have assurance of their salvation. They think that they might have been saved, 
Maybe they made a profession of faith at some time. They struggle with sin in an ongoing fashion like we talked about last week in Romans chapter 7. They don't know where that leaves them before God or how God looks at them. You know, one of my favorite things to do uh, is to go downhill skiing. If I could choose a vacation, that's the vacation I would choose. And Amy and I uh, both love to do that. There's just something incredible about being outside in the mountains, enjoying the brisk air, enjoying the variety of terrain that comes with a day of skiing. And a few years ago, I was struck uh, by the fact that as I got onto the chairlift at a ski resort, uh, this little boy got on next to me and sat down. I don't even really remember his name, but we'll call, for just for the sake of the story, we'll call him Jake. And Jake must have been five or six years old. And as we started to go up the chairlift together, it was just he and I on the chair, and, and I looked over at him, and he was sitting there quietly, and so we started talking, and, and then he kind of turned and confidently asked me my name and where I was from. And we talked a little bit more, and he told me how much he loved skiing, how it was his favorite thing to do. And I asked him, well, hey, Jake, what's your favorite part about skiing? And as he was adjusting his helmet and his little goggles, he sort of looked at me and he just said, I like going really fast. <laughs> and then he turned and looked straight ahead up the mountain. And at this point, we're going higher and higher and higher, and the wind is starting to pick up, and the chair is starting to sway back and forth a little bit because of the wind. And, and I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm pretty impressed by this little five- or six-year-old boy who's up here seemingly by himself. And it, we're going to a part of the mountain that we'll just say it's not the bunny hill. <laughs> and the sway is going back and forth a little bit. And I'm thinking to myself, this kid's got a pretty bold sense of confidence. And at this point, we get to the top of the chairlift, and he looks at me and says bye. And as he's skiing down off the little ramp, I hear him scream with delight as he saw his father waiting for him at the top of the chairlift. Dad was there, and he was about six foot five, and a very large man, clearly a veteran of the mountain. And we gave each other a little bit of a nod and we went on our separate way. And it occurred to me as I was going away why Jake felt so comfortable and so confident on the mountain. It wasn't his skill. It wasn't his equipment. His confidence was grounded in the fact, in the guy who was waiting for him at the top of the mountain. His confidence, his assurance was rooted in that his father had been watching over him as he was coming up the chair. And his father was a very big father. Christians, when God says that you are no longer under condemnation if you are found in Christ, then you can have assurance from this day until the very last that God will not revoke 
that claim. He did not free you from slavery to sin only to have you become enslaved somewhere later down the line. He did not release you from condemnation only to have you condemned later on down the line. At the very beginning of Romans chapter 8 is a wonderful and glorious truth. If you have faith in Jesus, God looks at you with no condemnation ever again. You can be assured that you're free from the ultimate power of sin and you're free from the penalty of that sin because of the person that you have assurance in. God the Father and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so then he goes on just very directly to describe again why you can have this type of assurance. He says in verse three that God has done by the law God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Those two phrases are very interesting. That is in the Christmas story that we just celebrated that Jesus, the son of God, comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is to say, he is fully God and fully man. And therefore, he's like us. He has temptations to sin. He experiences the variety of difficulties of the human experience. He's like us. But he's unlike us in that he never sinned. (laughs) It says also that he came for sin. That's an interesting purpose statement. That we often think that Jesus comes for us, and that's true. (laughs) Jesus comes to engage people, to show God to us. But in another way, we might say that Jesus came came for sin or came to address sin or because of sin. And this falls right in line with all these other purposes, statements of Jesus, right? That Jesus came to seek and save the lost. We know that we are lost in our sin. That Jesus came so that we would know the truth and We know that sin is the great deceiver. We know that Jesus came, as he said, that we would have life and have it to the full. But we see here in Romans 8 and elsewhere in Romans 5 through 8 that sin is the thing that doesn't bring life, it actually brings death. And so there's this wonderful twofold result. And you see it in verse 3 and 4. The first is that he comes to condemn sin in the flesh, to show it for what it is, and to condemn it. And then, secondly, that the righteous requirement of the law is met for those walking in the Spirit. That is to say, through faith in Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, his his righteousness, he fulfilled the law, is applied to you, and therefore, you're not under condemnation anymore. True freedom comes when you have nothing to prove. Does that hold true here? I think it does. Because if verse 1 is grounded by verse 2 and verse 2 is grounded by verses 3 and 4, you are free to live a new life in the Spirit of God because Christ has condemned sin and given you his righteousness. 
You have nothing to prove before God if you have your faith in Christ because Christ has already proven it or accomplished it for you. And in this, you enjoy this wonderful dual reality in the Christian life of security and freedom. Security and freedom. Assurance that you are positionally and relationally with the Father in heaven. God has freed us from sin so that we can grow in this new life in the Spirit. And from there, Paul goes on to give a contrast to help us understand what this new life in the Spirit looks like. He doesn't give us a complete picture just yet, but he gives us a piece of it. So what does it look like to live in the Holy Spirit that God gives? Sometimes we learn through contrast, don't we? We, we look at two opposite things to each other, and in doing that, we see both of them a little bit more clearly as we highlight them. And here he's describing the spirit versus life in the flesh. And another way to say that is he's describing the Christian and he's describing the non-Christian. And look at what he says in verse five. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So one of the key markers of a person who lives by the Spirit one of the key markers of a person who's a Christian is the mind. And we see him talk about the mind of the flesh and the mind of the spirit. And this idea of the mind, the connotation of the word, is, has the connotation of a mind set. It's not just the physical capacity to think, but it's a mindset. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of thinking that informs how you live. Now, you're familiar with the idea of a mindset because we have all these little pithy sayings that sort of communicate them. Work hard, play hard. You only live once. Never pass up a chance to eat. A penny saved is a penny earned. These are all little pithy sayings that communicate a way of thinking that informs how you act. And there's a million more that we could say. So if you're a Christian, Paul says here in verses 5 through 8 that you have your mind or your thoughts or your way of thinking on the things of the Spirit. That is to say that you delight in the things of God, that you ponder what they mean for you, and that you strive as you think of them to live in accordance with the things of God. D.L. Moody one time gave an illustration about this idea of filling of the Holy Spirit and how it applies to the Christian life. And he held up a glass half full of water and he looked at the crowd and he says, well, how do I get the air out of this glass? And one person boldly raised his hand and he said, you put a lid on the glass and then you suck the air out of the glass. 
To which Moody replied, I don't think that's going to work because when you suck the air out, it's going to create a vacuum that breaks the glass. How do you get the air out of the glass? And he took a pitcher of water and he poured it into the glass and he filled it all the way up to the top so there was no room left. That's what in some ways it means to live in the spirit. That you are continually filling your mind with the things of the spirit that inform a mindset for your life. Now look at what it says about the mind of the flesh by way of contrast. It says that a life of the flesh leads to that kind of mindset. So we might say that when you continue to engage in actions of the flesh, of the sinful nature is another way to describe the flesh here. It's a different rendering of the same word. When you continue to engage in actions of the sinful nature, then your mindset becomes inclined to those sinful things. They become normal to you. They become appealing to you, and you orient your reality such as to live them out. Now, we could say this broadly and more specifically, right? So the mindset of the flesh, when you focus on the things of the world, the values of the world, then you begin to continue in such a manner in which you're living them out. So whether that, what are the values of the world? Well, we could just pick on the easy ones. Wealth accumulation, personal gain, celebrity status, personal pleasure-seeking, self-serving behavior, and on down the line. But these things don't last, and they're not for your good, Paul says. It says they don't lead to life and to peace. They actually lead to the exact opposite. They lead to death. The Spirit of God is the one who gives a mindset, a way of thinking that informs your life, that leads to life and to peace. It leads to a fulfillment for you. We might call it a life in the spirit. God's freed you from the power of sin so that you can grow in this new life in the spirit. And I think there are a number of applications here, but I want to just drill into four. Because if you look at the text and you see that verse 7 and 8, that the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When you hear that and when you think about that, that should evoke in you a variety of emotions and responses. And the first one is that when you hear that anybody is hostile to God or unable to please God, that this should cause you to think compassionately about them. They might not feel hostile toward God, but when you peel back some layers of how they orient their life, what they believe, what they want to do, you can guarantee that there are at least some elements in which they are hostile to the ways of God. <laughs> and if you're hostile to the ways of God, you're hostile to God himself. And you know, if you're a Christian, what being hostile to God leads to. you know that that's not just some casual state. You know how serious that is. And so you think compassionately about that person. 
and you look for ways to help them out of their hostility by talking to them about the things of God and displaying for them how those play out. You share the gospel with them (laughs) and you live the gospel out in front of them. Now, if it's true that a non-Christian is unable to please God, as it says here in verse 8, then this is a great warning for any of us here in the room today who have not yet put our faith in Christ. It highlights, again, this fact that we see in the Bible that there's no morally neutral ground before God To have the righteousness of Jesus applied to you is the only way that God is pleased with you. And so I implore you, if you're here today and you've yet to put your faith in Christ, then don't live in this place thinking you can be morally neutral before him and therefore be just fine in some way that he might be pleased with your efforts. Wait no longer to trust in Christ and Christ alone for his righteousness. Here's a third point of application. This truth is the principal reason why moralism does not work. This truth that the the actions of the flesh lead to a mind of the flesh and that the mind of the flesh, that way of thinking, continues to keep us in hostility toward God or not being able to please God, this is the principal reason why moralism doesn't work. Let me, just, let me describe that for you. Moralism is when you teach to the behavior or when you teach to morals and you expect that lasting and meaningful change will occur in a person if they just do the right things, if they live a generally moral life. However, if a person has the mind of the flesh That person is unable to please God because they lack the righteousness of Christ applied to him. Then there's no meaningful, divinely empowered change that can occur by simply conforming to an external moral standard. In fact, we saw just last week in Romans 7 that the struggle with that conformity to the law is so difficult because sin is so powerful that we cannot actually do it. And so when we just expect someone to conform to a moral standard, don't expect that you will get the lasting result because something internal has to change through faith in Christ the entrance of the Holy Spirit that changes the mindset, that informs the actions which will ultimately produce a whole new person. And so we guard very carefully against just teaching to morals, though morals are important. Internal change through faith in Christ and the ministry of the Spirit is what drives true Christian morality. And so what does that mean? It means that when we look at the world around us, that we don't hope in politicians to affect the lasting type of change that Christians are hoping for. I mean, even if a politician's agenda aligns with that of Christians, external conformity to a moral standard will not result in the type of change that God ultimately wants. 
Now that isn't to say that Christians shouldn't be involved in politics. They should. And this is a part of God's common grace and God's established authority structure and there's blessing of some sort for a society in that way. But it is to say that legislating morality can never take the place of evangelism of the church because one deals with the body of flesh but the other deals with the soul by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. Here's a fourth application. A fourth application is that when you grow in a mind of the Spirit, this is a miraculous work of God in your life in which he grows you in ways that you have no part of and cannot understand. And yet at the same time, he expects you to participate actively in this growth in a mindset. And so the question becomes, how are you forming your mind? Because if the Spirit of God is in you, then you have a wonderful opportunity to continue to form your mind alongside of the way that the Spirit is forming your mind. If we simply fill our minds with the things of celebrity culture or the fantasy world of any of the latest popular TV shows, whether that's Game of Thrones or Zombie Apocalypse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, or, or whatever they might be, or if we simply continue to read sort of the trashy magazines of pop culture or books that promote in us these really distorted views of romance and love and relationships, these things are not functioning just as mere escapes from reality or a form of entertainment for you. They actually begin to form your mind, <laughs> your mindset. You think about them after you experience them. Your affections become heightened in them as you experience them. And they start to inform the way that you look at reality and act into that reality. But if you are forming your mind intentionally and actively in the spirit, because you have the mind of the spirit, then what does that look like? What does that mean you should be putting in there? Well, at the very base, this is why Christians have said for centuries that you should be reading your Bible every day. And we've called it all kinds of different things. Your quiet time, your personal devotions with God, your, your, your daily Bible reading plan, whatever that looks like. Because if the Spirit of God inspired the Word of God and the Spirit of God indwells within you, giving you a mindset, then do you think that the Spirit works in conjunction with itself to shape the way that you look at the world? Absolutely. So read your Bible every day, and that will help form your mindset. But here's another one. I have two more on this. Number one is read your Bible. Number two is, you know, um, 
sometimes people will ask me for a book recommendation or we'll be talking about something and I'll recommend a book to them. I'm a big believer in reading and specifically because of this dynamic, it helps form your mind. And so I will recommend to somebody a book on theology and I, get the, I automatically sort of get the hairy eye and the laugh, like <laughs> theology. I can't possibly read theology. But reading theology does something in you, Christian, that nothing else does other than the word of God itself. It takes the experiences that you've engaged with God in his word and the reality of your life as you've been observing God working in the world and your own Christian experience, and it puts language and structure to it in such a way that it codifies these realities in your mind. And so when you read theology, and I'm not talking about massive ancient theology books, I'm talking about even, even small books. When you read theology, what that does is it forms in you a mindset. It's the truths of God are cemented in you, and you think about them as you read, as you engage, as you move about your days. And then finally on this point, intentional conversations is a way that you fill your mind, that you look at people around you and you have important and intentional conversations about the meaningful things of God, and this feeds your mind in some way. The mind is like the stomach, It's not how much you put in that counts, but it's what it digests that matters the most. Time is moving on. Verses 9 to 11, look with me really quickly. We see the promise of a resurrection life. And it says that you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Christian, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Very quickly, what does a resurrection life look like? What does a spirit-filled life look like? Well, number one, verse nine gives us a great promise that the spirit, the Holy Spirit, is for all Christians. One of God's greatest gifts to you is himself in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's not just for the super spiritual among you. And it's important to realize because there's some forms of teaching out there, particularly in certain Pentecostal circles, that say that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit only happens when you speak in tongues or exercise some form of miraculous spiritual gift. But verse 9 makes it very clear that if you're in Christ, that the Spirit is in you. All of you are in the Spirit if you have faith in Jesus. All. We might not always reflect that. (laughs) in our actions or our language or our thoughts. But nevertheless, the Spirit is there. And this is because the ministry of the Spirit is inseparable from the ministry of the Father and the Son. Look with me. 
We see in verses two and three that the Father and the Son and the Spirit all work together in redemption. God the Father sends his Son, Jesus, to condemn sin, and the Holy Spirit applies the benefit of that action to your life. Look with me at verses nine and 10, the verse that we just read. We're gonna have it up here on the screen. Look at how the Spirit and the Father and the Son are all talked about together so tightly. It says in verses nine and 10 that you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead to the sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So what dwells within you? At first it says the spirit of God. And then in the very same verse, it says, the spirit of Christ dwells within you. And then in the very next verse, it says that Christ is in you. So you see this incredible expression of the three persons of the Trinity all working together so precisely that you can almost move in between their work seamlessly. He's not saying that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all the same. He's distinguishing between them, but talking about how they're all engaged in the life of the Christian. And this is to encourage you that the whole trinity of God is engaged in saving you and in keeping you and in ultimately bringing you to your eternal home. Verse 11 points to this power of the resurrected life because God has freed you from sin so that we can grow into a new life in the spirit. And so I want to close this morning with a poem. I don't often do this. This is a poem from the late 1800s that encourages you with good news. It says this, No distant Lord have I, loving afar to be, Made flesh for me, he cannot rest until he rests in me. Brother in joy and pain, bone of my bone was he, more intimate and closer still, he dwells himself in me. I need not journey for this dearest friend to see. Companionship is always mine. He makes his home with me. Let's pray. Father, that you work in and through us to the accomplishments of your Son, applied to us by the indwelling of your Spirit, transforming our mind and giving us the things of you. We give you thanks and praise. And as we turn now to the Lord's Supper, We remember that the proclamation of the gospel found here in the bread and the cup symbolizing Christ crucified, paying the penalty for our sin and giving us his righteousness is one that cannot be replaced, a truth that cannot be replaced by anything or anyone. And so we proclaim it boldly and we rest in it confidently assured that those of us who have faith are no longer under condemnation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.